two weeks ago, uh, we made the brief uh, switch to Zoom, and I know it's abrupt for some of you, uh, but along with that, we also kicked off a brief series, a sermon series, on caring for one another. So Pastor Allen helped us to see how caring for one another <clears throat> really requires that we consider each other. Uh, then last week, we looked at how God comforts us in our afflictions and then equips us to then comfort one another. And today, we will conclude our Caring for One Another series. And to do that, we're going to look at a specific way we care for each other. That we care for one another by serving one another. And in order to explore this topic, I would like to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And I'll go ahead and read our passage and pray for our time tonight. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8 reads, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is our passage for tonight, and that is the Word of God. Uh, let's open our time with a word of prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for just this time that we can come to your Word, Lord. Uh, give us humble hearts, Lord, ready to receive what you would have to, to say, Lord. Um, may that we be teachable as well as be encouraged by the truths that your word has to offer. Uh, so we ask for your help, um, your spirit's blessing upon tonight. We love you. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd like to begin our time uh, with a brief thought experiment on the theme of teamwork. Uh, imagine you're playing a, a team sport like, for example, basketball. And in this game of basketball, however, each person has a different objective in the game. Now you think, well, how can you have a different objective, right? Well, let's consider this. One person wants to win and wants to exploit all facets of the game in order to score buckets and prevent the other team from scoring. Sounds simple enough, right? But then imagine another person on the team. Another person on the team is just trying to pad his stats, okay? So particularly three-point shots. So even though he's not a really good three-point shooter, he attempts threes on every possession even though he's not Steph Curry. Then let's say you have another player on the team that doesn't really care at all. He's only in the game because he's uh, tied to a multiple-year contract. Easy money. No, uh, no effort needed. And finally, you have a guy who really, really doesn't care about scoring or paying attention to the other aspects of the game. His game is to get in the head of other players psychologically, even if it means fouling out in order to mess with the other team. And then we all know someone who's willing to play dirty and cheat as well. Anyways, what do you think will happen to this team when they play basketball? A, a game, an important game. Well, at least in my mind, it doesn't seem like they're going to do well at all. 
Uh, it seems as if there will be a lack of communication, seeing eye to eye uh, on the same objective, which will lead to a disunified team where people are pursuing their own goals and ends. So while this is only an imaginary scenario, it gets real when we see personal ambition get in the way of working together and promoting unity as a team or as a unit. After all, many of us live like this every day. Uh, we can easily go about our lives only considering ourselves. Uh, while no longer in college, thinking about good grades and where you'll find an internship or a job for many of us, thinking about ourselves is now preoccupied by our future trajectory in life. For some, it may be looking for a career path you find hopeful in terms of doing something you're passionate about. Or maybe thinking about your, yourself is a, a focus on building your portfolio or retirement or other financial goals that you might have, like saving enough for a down payment on a house. Or some of you might be thinking about dating relationships with an eye towards the next season in life. All of us have been guilty of only seeing our lives and interactions through the lens of, of self. And in a similar way, we can sometimes bring that perspective into the church when we approach our interactions and friendships in the body of Christ. So tonight's passage is a direct challenge to our hearts, a, a challenge to reimagine our approach to relationships within the church and how we treat one another. And so the hope is that we would grow and move away from this you-do-you mindset so that we may adopt a me-serve-you mindset, right? Or at least the receiving end of someone saying you-do-you to us. So our passage tonight comes from the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter to the church in Philippi while he was imprisoned in Rome. So being in prison, it could be easy to overlook the possibility that Paul could have actually felt really lonely, restricted. His ministry uh, could have came to a full stop halt. But instead, we see that despite Paul's circumstances, he's joyful and he's thankful for the church. Paul is filled with thankfulness because the Philippians were partners in the gospel. Uh, the Philippians had cared for Paul by sending a man named Epaphroditus uh, to help him care for him. And despite afflictions and the possibilities of execution, the apostle confidently states that for him, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What could have compelled a man to make such an extreme shocking statement? Uh, certainly it was the love of Jesus Christ. Uh, who's going to argue with a zealous Christian that it's better to be with Jesus rather than suffer and face hardship on earth, right? Yet at the same time, Paul wasn't suicidal. Rather, he understood that if he's released and remains alive, it means more opportunities to advance the gospel and remain in partnership with the churches for their spiritual growth. It was an understanding that real sacrifice wasn't just dying to be with Jesus, right? And in that moment, for Paul, that would be easy. He didn't fear death. Rather, the real sacrifice would be staying alive for the sake of serving others. And so that's why in chapter 1, verse 27, uh, just prior to our passage, he challenges believers to live in a way where their life and actions are consistent with the gospel that they profess. Uh, Paul invites them to participate in the unified goal of gospel advancement and growth in faith together as a church. Uh, with that in mind comes our key idea for tonight. Uh, our key idea will explore how we are called to care for others like Christ by serving and putting others' interests above our own. And to do that, we'll look at three points that should stir your hearts to care for others like Christ. Uh, the first point I want us to consider for this evening is the shared motivation. Uh, look with me at verse 1. 
looking at verse 1, it reads, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, we can stop right there. And what stands out is Paul repeatedly stirs their affections so that they would be motivated to respond favorably. Uh, he does this by a sequence of if statements. You know, if this is true, then this should follow. However, Paul's not just uh, trying to be inquisitive or speak in hypotheticals. That's not his logic at all. It would be wrong to think Paul's making us question whether his statements are true or not. Instead, he reminds believers of what is already present for those who have genuinely trusted in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. These are gospel certainties, not mere possibilities. He's giving a, a, a tight-knit case for gospel realities that believers already experience in Christ in the present. And he appeals to their hearts about all the gospel benefits they have received because of Jesus. And the first motivation here is encouragement in Christ. Paul connects his encouragement with the preceding verses in chapters one, uh, chapter 1, verse 29 to 30. That despite suffering and struggles, Paul grounds the comfort they have in Christ. It's this a shared comfort both Paul and the Philippian believers share as they navigate suffering and conflict that life throws at them. Uh, the second motivation we read here is that, that Paul mentions is a comfort from love. So what Paul says here is that we can be comforted by the reality of love we have received. Paul is likely referring to the love that comes from God. Uh, we have experienced comfort from God's a love lavished on us, right? So it's speaking of the love coming from the God of the Father. That's what many uh, uh, believe this uh, to be referring to in terms of who is the one loving and who is the, the, the recipient of the love. And the third motivation is participation in the Spirit. Believers share the same Holy Spirit, for it was by the Spirit that they were united to God in Christ and united with one another. And so Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, in a similar way, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Uh, the emphasis and the motivation is that we all have in common the sharing of the spirit. It is a gospel reality for the entire community of believers, rather than just our own individual possession of our spirit. So that's the emphasis there. The Spirit shared amongst the community. And the fourth motivation is affection and sympathy. Two words to describe one idea. Uh, both these words refer to the single idea of the innermost person, uh, the seed of emotions and deepest feelings. Basically, he's saying, look, if you have any positive, uh, deep-seated emotions and feelings about the blessings you have received from God, then this should follow. After all, believers have been brought into relationship with the triune God and have received these gospel benefits and by, by God's grace. And mentioning these gospel realities is really with a singular goal in mind. Uh, the compelling appeal leaves us with no other option than to heartily agree with what follows. He's funneling us to the point where there's only one proper response. It's like Paul saying, isn't it true that you've received these benefits and blessings in Christ? And since it is true, this ought to take place in your life. You see, gospel realities always lead to gospel implications. 
Look with me at verse 2, where he writes, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. It's here that Paul comes out with this meta-statement that's really the main exhortation in these verses, to make his joy complete. You want to know what will really fill me up with joy? Paul's saying, while Paul's cup of joy seemed to have increased ever so much with every instant of mention of joy in the book of Philippians, a, a total of 16 times, it's here that he points out what would make his joy filled to the brim, complete, right? You know, filled uh, to the uttermost. But we must ask, why is it such a big deal to, to increase Paul's joy? Uh, what's it got to do with you and me? Is Paul some selfish dude just wanting to, to bring himself joy? Well, we must understand that he's writing within the context of affliction. Uh, affliction that not only Paul faced, but believers in Philippi as well. Uh, their affliction led to discouragement within the church community. So out of a concern that believers, they, they might lose their joyful perspective in life, uh, in Christ, Paul reminds them of how their care for him ultimately brought joy to him. And what will subsequently give him a complete joy. You see, the apostle realized a key principle about experiencing joy in life. And the key ingredient to joy in Christ is really a shifting of attention away from ourselves, in this case the Philippians, and on to the needs of others, in this case Paul. Just as the Philippians had demonstrated for their care for him, right, and in sending Epaphroditus. And so the, 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 the request, or the, the how, can believers fill Paul with joy is simply this. It's unity. Paul repeats over and over, same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. And his encouragement, his exhortation to increase his joy is closely tied to the unified mindset demonstrated in relationships with each other, with one another. Throughout this letter, Paul has made his joy evident over and over again. It, it would probably take a lot to rob Paul of his joy. It would seem like he's just always happy with a cheerful dis disposition. And perhaps, actually, maybe you know someone like that who's always cheerful and happy in life. I think for me, spending more time with uh, Pastor Alan, it's always seeing his son on the Zoom screen, and he's always so joyful and happy. So we'll, I'll use him as an example. But because Paul said his joy would be complete if they pursue unity, the converse is also true as well. One of the largest factors that would take joy away from Paul is the serious issue of disunity. If there's one thing that could take joy away from Paul, a leader of the church, and who, who beloved and cared for the, 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 the Philippians, it would be fractured relationships where people don't get along with each other. In fact, later in Philippians 4, Paul gives a specific mention of an instance of disunity uh, between two women by the name of Yudia and Syntyche. And they have a disagreement, and Paul exhorts them to agree in the Lord. You see, you see, the danger in our relationships within the church and the barrier for rightly treating each other is disunity. Disunity will prevent us from serving one another with the right heart, with the right attitude, as well as it will compromise our gospel testimony. After all, if we're disunified in our interactions, when we draw away from each other or ignore each other, not only are we going against God's design for the body of believers, we're also telling, testifying to the world that, you know what, the gospel really doesn't have power to put to death our sinful nature and for us to be transformed from the inside out. 
That the gospel doesn't really have the ability to turn our selfishness into selflessness towards one another. So with the importance of unity at stake, what should this unity look like? Well, the first is that there's a pursuit of like-mindedness. Like-mindedness is when the community of believers set their mind on the same thing. It's this frame of mind with the same worldview on life, values, and, and people. Uh, now, unity doesn't mean we all have to have the same Zoom backgrounds when we join in from Praxis or that we have the same hobbies. Uh, unity isn't necessarily completing each other's thoughts or having mental synchronization like a popular Disney song from the movie Frozen would have you to believe. It's not even having all the same opinions about everything. He's not calling us to be walking copycats of each other, where being at Lighthouse means I have to root for the Dodgers or Lakers or enjoy Boba and Tacos. What sparks joy for Paul and what ought to for us as well is a pursuit of like-minded purpose and feelings about Jesus Christ and the good news about him, the gospel. Unity is further described by having the same love. This is having the same love for one another as he continues. Paul earlier prayed that their love would abound and increase for one another more and more. And therefore, the motivation to move towards unity and really the, the, the basis for caring for one another rests on whether they are unified in love towards each other. Love and unity go hand in hand and validate one another or each other. Love should not uh, be something that is lacking in the church or fellowship at Philippi, and nor should it be lacking in our fellowship and church as well. Uh, to have the same love really means to, to love each other equally. Now that might kind of love each other equally. That might kind of sound like absolutely nuts at first and perhaps even impossible in many of our minds. After all, like maybe we're thinking, you know, not all of us are equally attractive. Not all of us have uh, the same personality. Uh, you might say to yourself, uh, not everyone is uh, as friendly. Uh, you could argue that some people aren't as lovable uh, to varying degrees based off, yeah, the personality, the, the character. But what this agape love challenges us with is an equal love out of our own will. We choose to love equally, right? Out of our own will. It's not based on a preferences that I might have to, to, to love the other person that we might have, based off uh, attraction towards another person, uh, another person as a friend, right? It's an intentional decision to, to seek the welfare and highest good of another person. It's a kind of love that's shown not because the other person necessarily deserves it, or is it going to necessarily reciprocate, right? Or I get a benefit out of it. It's not a transactional love where uh, you derive a benefit or incentive for caring for another person. Instead, this love is rooted in the love that God has poured out to undeserving sinners as, just as us through Christ. And now we are called to demonstrate this type of love towards one another. Uh, one last phrase I want us to consider in verse 2 where believers are challenged to uh, to be in full accord in of one mind. Uh, the word here for full accord literally means united in one spirit or united in spirit. And so there's a, there's a sense of harmony we have with each other. Uh, both of our spirits and minds should be in unity. Our whole person and being, right? It's not just in our heads, but unity should permeate our hearts as well in our feelings about others and ultimately leads to actual love and care for others, right? Through our hands. I think an illustration that vividly describes the unity of, of mind and spirit we are to strive for in the church and what relationships reflect 
find a close parallel in the world of orchestra performances, so music. Uh, you may have heard this illustration before. It's super popular because it comes from A.W. Tozer and his book, uh, The Pursuit of God. Uh, but this is what he writes, this idea of, of fellowship and, and being uh, one. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers being together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they possi could possibly be, were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. When our minds and hearts are tuned to the gospel of Jesus Christ and its implications on how we relate to one another, then joyful unity will exist in church, right? With the people we know and interact with. But how will our minds and hearts be collectively tuned to the gospel so that we can actually achieve this unity? While we may readily admit we yearn for the common goal of advancing the gospel and strive side by side with one another in the faith, we have to admit that while this unity sounds nice, achieving it is actually a lot harder. How are we going to grow and achieve the unity we're called to demonstrate? Well, if we truly desire the advancement of the gospel and to strive side by side with each other as believers, then we must learn to be humble. We must adopt a selfless mindset so that we may serve one another humbly. We learn to get out of the spotlight where the camera is no longer focused on recording a life of me, myself, and I. And when we're able to get out of the way in that way, we will be able to put others before ourselves. And so the movement and, and shift that Paul is making is helping us to see that, that prioritizing unity in Christ is going to require that we lay down our selfish privileges or status. Humility is the key to unity. Humility is the key to unity. Therefore, we must adopt a selfless mindset. And that's our second point for this evening, having a selfless mindset. Ultimately, uh, having a selfless mindset should bear fruit in humility, in humble service towards each other, uh, to serve each other in all humility. Uh, look with me at verse 3, where it reads, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Uh, a genuine care for unity in the church community should result in prioritizing personal humility. A genuine care for unity in the church community should result in you prioritizing your own personal humility. It should result in an individual believer cultivating a selfless mindset. Uh, Paul starts out by speaking of humanity from both a negative perspective and then a positive perspective. Negatively, Paul states that the opposite of humility is this, selfish ambition. Uh, the word for selfish ambition described those who were preaching Christ out of impure motives and likely were envious of Paul and his ministry, right? So why not afflict him by taunting him and attempt, him, uh, attempt to make him feel bad for what he can't do while he's imprisoned? So they puff themselves up and, and try to make themselves look at relative to Paul, uh, Paul in, the, in their preaching and their teaching. And so you see, ambition is, a, is this deep-seated desire. It's a, it's a lust in the heart for a certain level of recognition, and attention from others. It's a drive for personal gain, but a drive for personal gain at the expense of others. And the second negative attitude is here is conceit. You can think of conceit as someone who thinks too highly of themselves, 
uh, estimation of themselves that is nowhere grounded in reality, okay? So the word in Greek captured by some translations literally means empty glory, right? Empty glory. It's a person that has an elevated view of themselves or appears to have a polished facade to give the appearance that glory is warranted for them. But the person is really devoid of that inner reality to kind of justify that. Uh, just by way of quick illustration, I remember uh, when the gyms were open, I used to work out at the gym with a friend. Uh, the perfect uh, situation for empty glory, especially for guys. And when I repeatedly told my friend I could lift a certain amount of weight a certain amount of times because I've done it before, you know, typical gym bro talk. And it's public gym too, so everyone's watching. So I tell my friend repeatedly, I, I, I got this, man. I got this, man. I've lifted heavier than this before, right? And so what we, well, we know how the story went, right? Pride before fall. That glorious claim of being able to, to lift uh, a heavy amount of weight took a turn for the worse when, you know, just after like one or two, uh, you know, reps or basically as soon as like it was released, uh, basically what happened was, yeah, I gave, gave in way earlier than expected and I had to yell like, help, help, help and hope nobody watched or heard that. But anyways, the glory one thinks he or she has is a false illusion. It's a mirage. The challenge for believers is that in our relationships with one another, in how we treat each other, it shouldn't be out of a heart-seeking glory in position or prestige, a power or what you possess. The biggest obstacle of unity isn't the presence of legitimate differences of opinion, but it's self-centeredness. And as we've just seen, a self-centered heart manifests itself in selfish ambition and conceit. Both of these attitudes are divisive. They breed disunity. As believers, we've been called to abandon, uh, abandon and put off a selfish mindset that prevents us from serving humbly and are instead called to have a selfless mindset. And this brought out, uh, this brought out more in the phrase where Paul speaks positively, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Uh, so what this means is that you value other people. I think people wrongly interpret this verse sometimes where they think this verse is teaching that we should consider others better than ourselves in, in, in a certain sense. Because if, if that were the case, it would be like an infinite loop where we're all arguing with each other, like who is better than us and who should be served, right? And at the end of the day, no one is going to be serving each other. Okay, maybe that's just a logical dilemma that I thought about and ran through my mind, but it happens a lot when you, try to, you fight for the bill at like a restaurant, but that might just be a cultural thing. It's not, oh, oh, so-and-so is better than me, or, oh, for example, Alan, you're better than me, or, oh, Isaac, you're better than me, oh, Corey is better than me, oh, I suck, I'm just like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, but that's not what Paul means here, okay? He's not talking about beating yourself down and having a, a self-deprecating view of yourself, because that can be a form of false humility in and of itself. You know, where you're very much still thinking about yourself that whole time, even if it's a low view of self, which is self-centered rather than other-centered. So you know what, Alan? You're not better than me. Isaac, you're not better than me. Corey, you're not better than me. Uh, just joking here. <laughs> but getting back on track to what Paul means, what this means is that believers are to count others more significant than ourselves in the context of caring for them, putting their needs ahead of our own. We value others' needs above our own. Uh, others in the church community aren't necessarily, quote-unquote, better than you, 
but their needs and their interests ought to surpass your own. So the way I should treat and regard others is like this. Alan, you're maybe not better than me in the terms of intrinsic dignity and value since we're both you know, men made in the image of God, but your needs are more important and more significant than my own. Isaac, your needs are more significant than my own. Therefore, I, I want to help and serve you, brother, and put my personal agenda aside. See, the word for, for count or, or consider has to do with thinking. Our, our frame of mind, once again, how are you going to regard someone even if he or she is not intrinsically better than you? Well, humility doesn't try to evaluate or assess the worthiness of another person before moving towards them in care. Humility says whether or not you're actually worthy of my care and service, I have decided to treat you as someone who is worthy of my care and service. It goes back to the earlier discussion on the love we are to have for one another. It's not a preferential love, but an intentional one that cares for someone even when we don't prefer it. And so that's why when Paul calls believers to consider, we are to assume their needs are important, that other people in our lives are significant. They aren't just a blip on our relational radar. That's why when Paul calls believers to consider, we are to assume their needs are important, right? <clears throat> Humility doesn't treat relationships with people like a BuzzFeed worth it video or decider.com stream it or skip it review for the next Netflix video you might invest your time in. Humility assumes that the other person is worth it and that you should not skip over them. Paul continues to describe what a selfless mindset looks like in verse 4 where it says, let each of you look not only in his own interests but in the interests of others. So Paul says not to look to your own interests but to the interests of others. What the apostle is basically saying or doing in these verses is adding more color, adding more clarity on what a selfless mindset looks like, what a humble attitude looks like, humble in terms of serving one another. So Paul acknowledges that people will look out for their own interests. Uh, that's a given, you know. Uh, it's a natural and basic instinct for any person, believer or not. Uh, you don't need counsel from Justin Bieber for you to go and love yourself. Uh, the concept of loving yourself and seeking your own interests uh, was fundamental to you even at a young age, okay? Or when you were a baby that screamed and cried until you got your milk or your food. And as you grew older through the years in college and now as a single adult, we still look after ourselves, right? So here Paul is saying, just as you focus on the interests and your perceived needs that are centered around yourself, you need to look and treat the interests of others with the same degree of care and concern. I think we can conceptually think of it um, this way. Illustration. Uh, if you ever play like darts or have gone to the archery range, you, you know that generally speaking, you, you want to hit the, the center of the target, right? The, the, the small center. Uh, target cons uh, contains concentric circles, uh, but the dead center bull's eye will generally yield you the greatest amount of points, right? If you're playing a competitive game. The outer rings generally yield less points than hitting the bull's eye, right? And I think that's a great analogy for how we seek our own interests. Because we naturally aim and target our own interests in life because we see it as being more valuable. But in this case, looking to the interests of others means the value we place on the center of our lives is expanded, right? It's expanded to, uh, to those around us as well, uh, beyond just the bullseye of ourselves. Other people and their interests then have the same value as ourselves. The center is enlarged to include others and their interests. And so Paul's not saying that 
you can't, you know, you can never look out for your own interests in an absolute sense. Like say every time you have food on the table, it's not like he's saying like, give it up to someone else until you starve to death because you always give away your food, right? But Paul's challenging us to see beyond ourselves uh, an enlarged view of the interests of other people. It's a movement from mere attitude and thinking to then seeing and then responding to others in care and service. But Paul is challenging us, or actually, sorry, what does this practically look like? How can we put this humble mindset and attitude into practice as a fellowship group? That's appropriately called practice, uh, praxis, which is putting our faith into practice. Uh, well, for one, uh, if we have a selfless mindset and we seek to humbly serve one another, it means that there's no type of service that we can say is beneath us. There's no task or act of service for others that is below us. Uh, we should not adopt or buy into the mentality so prevalent in some work environments where we say to ourselves, no way am I doing that. No way am I going to serve this brother and sister in that way. That's below my pay grade or level of education I have obtained. I think sometimes we carry over that type of mentality in the church and our relationships with each other. Sorry, that's not in my church ministry job description. I personally had to grow and learn this lesson for myself uh, throughout seminary. Uh, it's funny that uh, Elder Gavin's in here listening in too, and we have uh, Pastor Allen. But uh, there was a time where I was taking trash out of praxis, and I thought like, man, why am I doing this every week, right? Like, in a way, I thought that kind of mindset, I didn't say it, but in my mind, like, that kind of complaining comes from the attitude of, of selfishness, right? It was basically like, this is beneath me. That ministry towards others wasn't just what I was comfortable with, right? I thought, you know, well, what do pastors do? Why, why do you go to seminary, right? You nerd out on the Bible and Christian books. But what would require selfless sacrifice in ways I wasn't comfortable or accustomed to was that. And I, I learned a genuine lesson through that. And that's why I'm sharing it, even though it doesn't paint me in a, in a great light. But that lesson applies to me just as it applies for you today, Praxis. What are those tasks that you feel are beneath you? What types of service towards others do you rationalize and justify as not being worthy of your time or effort? Who are those people in your lives that you know where you feel like serving them? No, that's they're not worth it. They're beneath me. I think this passage really challenges us with that thought, right? And whether we are guilty of the same in our lives. With that said, let's look at our last point for this evening. The supreme model. That is, Jesus Christ and his life is an example to then serve sacrificially. Look with me at verse 5. The supreme model. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 5 begins with a section that's regarded as one of the most popular verses in Philippians, and arguably the whole Bible. Uh, they give us a radiant, high-def picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. It's known to be one of the richest Christological passages in all of Paul's writing, and has gospel beauty written all over it. One theologian called it a majestic mountain peak, towering over the surrounding countryside. A pinnacle of theological truth, piercing the heavens and probing the mysteries of the Incarnation. Yet at the same time, this rich theology is not really just here for theology's sake. Right? It's not merely that. Paul's focus isn't so much on the person of Christ, but more so that 
so what he did and what those actions mean for believers, such as me and you today. Uh, after Paul provides this motivation and mindset we are to have, he draws our attention to the ultimate example of humility. He doesn't leave us in a pool of concepts and ideas, but he shows us that Christ is the model of sacrificial service. Christ is the epitome of humility. And if we are to joyfully be joyfully united to each other and to serve each other humbly, who else do we look as for a better example than Jesus Christ himself? When we look and behold Christ, it's not merely for stimulating our intellectual curiosity. Instead, we are to be blown away and in utter awe of who Jesus is. And the more we look and behold our Lord Jesus Christ, the more we will also be changed and transformed by the Spirit to be like Jesus. Just as 2 Corinthians 3.18 writes, and Paul, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So what do we see about Jesus in these verses? What can we learn from this example? Well, the first thing we learn is that Jesus was in the form of God. The word for form here is a, a bit tricky to understand. It does not mean that Jesus was deficient or uh, only similar to God the Father. Uh, he wasn't deficient in any way. Much like we would imagine a copycat painting of the Mona Lisa is clearly not the same thing as the original painting, right? Rather, when Paul uses the word form, form here, he means that we, what you see is an accurate and full representation of God. It is where the outward form accurately represents the very true being it is meant to represent. Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And I think this is where the, the NIV, shockingly, the NIV translation is helpful in that it actually affirms that Jesus was in his very nature God. That's how we translate it, right? The outer glory that Jesus possessed from eternity past is the exact same glory possessed by God the Father. So, but what does that all mean to you, Praxis, for us tonight? Well, my hope isn't just to fill your minds with complex theological ideas learned through the Bible while in seminary, only to leave your brains in cognitive cemetery. Or rather, I think Paul uses the word form, uh, word form instead of simply saying Jesus is God. Right? That would be simple. I mean, Paul could have wrote that. He didn't do that in a straightforward manner because he's trying to make a comparison for us to understand. He's trying to establish the glorious relationship and standing of Jesus being of the same standing as God the Father. That Jesus was not inferior in the form of his pre-incarnate existence as he transitions to talk about his incarnation. Yet as we uh, read along, he did not account his equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't use his equality with the Father for his own personal advantage as, uh, as we have come to see in worldly rulers in the annals of human history. Like a glorious king in regal garments, befitting the rightful ruler of all creation, sovereign uh, ruler of all creation, he did not assume his position and status as something to, to grasp or hold on to. Rather, the glorious garments of splendor full of jewels and precious metals is veiled when he took on the form of a servant, right? A slave. The king is still the king, but in taking on the form of a servant, we see a king dressed in servant's clothes. Dirty, ragged, torn, 
one looking at the appearance of a king dressed in, in peasant's clothing. Therefore, other servants would naturally not see or regard him as a king. Rather, the king is humiliated, and Jesus has become lowly and humiliated by taking on human flesh. And that's the picture I believe Paul is trying to paint when it says, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The glory of God has, uh, was veiled when he took on human form. When he was begotten through the supernatural birth from the Virgin Mary, you know, what we celebrate during Christmas time. The incarnation was an emptying of himself, born in an unassuming manger without fanfare, void of any pomp or circumstance. Christ emptied his spiritual appearance of deity at that point. Appearance. He emptied the external appearance of his divine essence. He relinquished the outward visible manifestation of the glorious God and the Son of God, yet never ceased to be God or lose his power or abilities. He left a place of privilege in heaven, in perfect fellowship with God the Father, and then condescended to earth. And Jesus' descent from the heights of heaven to the depths of this sinful, broken world was not for the purpose of self-serving or building a, a platform to achieve his own interests. He humbled himself and got low in his service to undeserving sinners. He humbled himself by meeting spiritual and physical needs and by healing those who were crippled or with disease. He humbled himself by associating with the social outcasts in society. He humbled himself by associating with the hated tax collectors. All the while the religious Pharisees and teachers of the law were shocked that this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Christ humbled himself when he served uh, when he served his disciples by washing their dirty feet, including the one who would soon betray him. Being truly God, yet also truly man, he lived among us as one of us. His rights and privilege as the Son of God, the one in whom the Father is well pleased, never made Jesus consider himself uh, too important for the sake of others. Praxis. Do you view your rights and privilege as being too significant to give up and to relinquish for the sake of serving others? What is considered too important for someone like you that's maybe preventing you from humbly caring and meeting the needs of that person? Do we hide under the veneer of busyness as we often tell others that we have been, what we've been up to as a way to hide the fact that we've been preoccupied by living for ourselves with entertainment and leisure rather than giving of ourselves in helping and encouraging others going through difficult trials? If Christ is our Lord and Savior, and, and the example of who we are continually being transformed into the image of, we must be reminded that the Son of Man came not to be served, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Verse 8 says, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul gives us this panoramic snapshot of the eternally pre-existent Christ and his incarnation when he took on human flesh. He talks about his, his life, his, his death and then resurrection. And in this portrait of Christ, we see God's Son humble himself and serve sacrificially. 
Uh, we see someone who stooped and, and stooped. He, he got lower and lower. He, he condescended as God becoming man, from man to servant, and then from obedient servant to death. And this death was no ordinary death. It was a humiliating death that was reserved and intended for criminals. Yet Jesus endured ridicule and scorn on the path to the cross. He, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And what followed was his garments were divided up and distributed by casting lots, right? That's how he was treated. He became a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He, he was mocked and, and treated as, a, as if he was a powerless person, a man on the cross, when he could have called upon legions of angels to rescue him and slay his oppressors. And as if being pierced and hung, on a cross to die was not excruciating enough. He suffered the holy wrath of God poured out on him as a substitute for sins, for the sins of many. Those three hours of darkness in the world was when he bore and absorbed the cup of wrath. This depth of suffering through the cup of wrath poured out on Christ is something we will never fully comprehend as his beloved children. Yet Jesus loved us to the very end. And because he was pierced for our transgressions, by his wounds, we are healed. Without his sacrificial service to the uttermost, even death on a cross, there would be no substitute for our sins. There would be no hope of salvation for us. There would be no hope of forgiveness of sins. There would be no hope of eternal life. And as our Lord He's a supreme model of who we look to and gaze upon to become more and more like him. So praxis, how do we humbly serve each other in a tangible way given many of us are sheltered at home right now and not seeing each other in person right now given the current circumstances? One thing, one way is we can serve others by sacrificially engaging each other. Even though it's out of our comfort zone, um, you feel like it's a lot of work um, to care for another person, the way Christ moved towards other people. It means we ask questions and really get to know the person that we connect with, even if it's through Zoom. By listening carefully and hearing more about the person, we are then in a better position to serve the needs of others, right? And to actually hear those needs. We know what those areas of needs are. But it also challenges us to go beyond mere pleasantries and for those being asked to share, it requires us to be honest and open. To not be selfish in what you don't share or withhold, where every week you just say, I'm, I'm busy, I'm fine. And I'm guilty of that too as well. And you can serve others by giving up time in your day to pray for one another, just as Jesus prayed for others. And prayer isn't something people are going to necessarily recognize you for, or even know if you actually prayed for them, unless you, to uh, unless you told them. Nevertheless, prayer for others is a demonstration of our humble service because it reveals our dependency on God and reliance on, reliance on God. And when our lives are devoid and absent of any prayer for ourselves or even other people, what that reflects is a prideful heart of self-sufficiency. So if you continue to read the rest of this section from verse 9 through 11, you'll, you'll know that Christ's humiliation would ultimately lead to his glorious exaltation. He is the Lord over all and our Lord Jesus Christ. So I'd like for us to just worshipfully reflect on these verses to end our time tonight. Verse 9 reads, 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Praxis, this is our Lord and Savior, who shows us the way to sacrificially serve one another. And may we continue to grow as a fellowship and church that seeks then to serve humbly and in joyful humility. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you just for this evening that we can come before you, Lord, and really glimpse closer at our humble Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who not only died for our sins, Lord, and given us the gift of salvation through your grace, unearned, undeserved. Um, We had no merit or you had no warrant to to deliver us and reconcile us, Lord. But you you did it out of your kindness and love, Lord. And I pray that 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 lesson, that that parable would just be a, a, a strong example and challenge to our hearts to pursue unity and to love and serve each other with humble hearts, Lord. So to that end, would you help us? We ask these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.